Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We are in verses 8 through 10. If you've been around the Bible much or church much, uh, these verses are very familiar, especially 8 and 9, not as much 10. But we're going to spend time in all three of them. So I'm going to read them, we're going to pray, and then we'll get after it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Father, I uh, pray that right now you would show yourself near. Uh, You tell us that it's in you that we live and move and have our being. You tell us over and over again that you are in our midst. You actually communicate the truth that you're holding all of this together in yourself. You're not distant. So I pray right now for those who are in this room that feel like you're really far off and even feel like it's really hard to believe you that you would show yourself near. God, I pray for those of us uh, who believe um, but God, feel distant from you that you would show yourself near and God, I pray for a breakthrough today. I pray for those that are so familiar with this passage that it would come alive in a fresh way and in a new way. I pray for those uh, who are so smart that their knowledge is puffing up that they would be shattered at the love of God and the love you call us to. And God, I pray for those who are deeply uh, broken and in darkness right now that you would show your nearness and your comfort. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So there's a a common accusation leveled at Christianity and especially leveled at the church, which just means his followers. And it's that Christianity is thin, flat, and passive. So it's not very deep, right? Right? It's thin. It's flat. It doesn't deal with the complexities of our world. It's just kind of a black and white, two-dimensional reality, and then it's passive. These people speak a big game, but they don't do a lot. Now, I, I have to confess, what many people experience of Christianity through the church is thin, it is flat, and it is passive. Much of what they experience is that people are very simplistic. And hear me when I say the word simplistic. By simplistic, I don't mean simple. There are so many things of God that are very direct and very simple. But I mean simplistic. Not dealing with the complexities of life. Not dealing with how confusing so much of life really is. And the fact is we also have to confess that at many times we don't sit with people in the midst of their complexity and many times we're not even sitting with them. We're far too passive when it comes to what God has really called us to do. Now that is a confession. A confession fundamentally that does not exploit Christianity, the Bible, Christ, or even the church for that matter. It's a confession that we aren't living up to that which God has called us to live into. Because the worldview that Paul comes from, who writes the book of Ephesians, is actually incredibly thick. It's thicker than thick. It's unbelievably textured, getting into every nook and cranny of the way life really is. 
And it certainly, most certainly is not passive. It's incredibly active. And all of that comes out in these three verses today. But I would tell you that many times we function in a way that comes off to the world and even to ourselves in our own personal lives when we go to bed at night or get up in the morning and go to work. We're operating in a construct that we don't think the faith is really relevant because we even think it's kind of thin, it's kind of flat, and it's pretty passive. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. God is active in the midst of everything all the time and he speaks to the realities of life. I'll just tell you on a personal basis. The more I live my life and the older I get, the more I experience suffering in ways I never thought I would experience or would have chosen to experience, the ways in which I deal with my own questions and my own confusion, the way I deal with my own pain and the way in which I deal with the joys and what they call the mountain peaks of life. In all of it, I've concluded this, the Bible's true. The Bible gives the best account of the way the world really is, but we function oftentimes in a thin, flat, passive way because of what we do to the Bible. So we take words like grace, words like saved, words like faith, and we make them very two-dimensional. The word, this is a big word, means we truncate them. We make them far smaller than what they really are. Now this word saved that's here, for by grace you've been saved, is a word that kind of everybody knows Christians believe, right? So if you're a Christian in this room, you know salvation and being saved is a big deal, amen? Amen. Now if you're in this room and you don't even believe, you know Christians are those people that are always trying to get us saved. But many of us don't understand the totality of what it really means. And regardless if you believe or don't believe, how much it testifies what in your body and your bones you groan to see happen in the world and in yourself. It speaks to the totality of it. So we're saved in the Bible from sin. That's all over clear. That Christ has saved us from our sins. But I don't want us to have a shallow, flat definition of sin. I want you to see it the way God wants us to see it and the way clearly the Apostle Paul was operating. So there's four dimensions of sin that Paul clearly understands that's so important for us to understand it to give meaning to this passage and the whole letter of the Ephesians and the whole Bible for that matter. The first dimension of sin is this, cosmic. Now I know this is a weird word, Because many people in this room are like, they don't ever use the word cosmic, and the only thing you know it associated with is cosmic bowling, right? And that's when all the lights go out, and then they have lasers shooting all around the room, and you can't totally see, and neon purple lights are going, and you either like it or you don't like it, but you're like, that's what I think of when I think of cosmic. That's not the way the Bible's talking about cosmic. The way the Bible's talking about cosmic, you could call it comprehensive. But now wait. Comprehensive in this sense, Colossians chapter 1 says that God made everything we see and all the things we can't see. So he goes, what are all those things we can't see? And he says rulers and dominions and powers, which is speaking of angels, demons, the devil. And it speaks to the whole world that God made. That's cosmic. Now, in this sense, I want you to see cosmic when it comes to what many times we'd call spiritual, the reality of the demonic, the reality of the devil, 
Paul's very clear in other places that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. Now, I know this can sound weird, like a little dark or at times mystical to certain people. And I've said this before, even in the last month in this room, is regardless if you believe this or not, you still have to give an account for how the world is so twisted, so dark, so distorted, so evil. The Bible gives an account for that, and it comes into this cosmic dimension of sin. The devil's real. What happened in the Bible, and so you understand that this is the starting place of sin in the Bible, is that God made all of the angels, but there was one angel, Lucifer, who sought to ascend the throne and dethrone God from his throne. Now, just so you know, don't try that. It's impossible, okay? That's impossible. So he gets cast out along with a bunch of his cronies that went with him, and they became Satan and demons. C.S. Lewis says it this way. It was through pride that Lucifer became the devil. And God allowed the devil and the demons to run wild to try to convince us of things that aren't true. The devil is a deceiver and a liar from the beginning. He's out to seek, he's out to kill, and he's out to destroy. Okay, so that's the cosmic dimension of sin that's going on all the time. Now, this is why when people ask the question, well, how did sin enter the world? Well, Paul says in the book of Romans that sin... All that's wrong with the world and all that's wrong with you and I entered the world through one man's disobedience. It was there, the snake was in the garden, but it entered into Adam listening to the false proud word of the devil rather than God's word. So this is where sin is cosmic and it's individual. Now I'm not going to let you stop here at thinking individual sin is only the things that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing. It is not less than that. Individual sin is not less than you doing the things that you shouldn't be doing. It is partly that. But it's also all the things that you and I should be doing that we're not. All the things the human race should be doing, in simple definition, love, that we're not doing. Sin at its core, cosmically, individually, and the next two, is all anti-love. So the Bible speaks about these things, of the things we should be doing that we're not doing, the things we are doing that we shouldn't be doing, but then the Bible even speaks about individual sin in such a way that there are intentional and unintentional sins. That there's stuff we do that we didn't even mean to do that screws stuff up. It screws us up, it screws other people up. It's all a reality. Sin is real. It is a presence and it's personal. Let me just say that again. Sin is a presence that's real in the world and it's personal. Now, individuals function. We have to live out of our God-given design of being made in the image of God. So we make families, right? We make crafts and we make companies. And we establish governments, right? This is all true, isn't it? And we start schools and we establish law. And this is why, because sinful people are doing those things, sin's cosmic, individual, and it's societal. Folks, this is so important to understand. If you make the Bible say something it's not, and you privatize, and you truncate this, all of the problems of the world, that in fact our problems are oppressing people, are seeing babies killed in the womb, are establishing racist Systems and problems are creating corrupt corporations, 
right, are causing people to molest children and child pornography to be a reality. Folks, that's all real because of disobedience to God, what the Bible calls sin. So we should never have a hard time understanding sin's cosmic, it's individual, it's societal, and here's the next thing. It's also ecclesial. Now let me tell you why I picked the word ecclesial, because I couldn't say churchial, right? Like, I don't even know how to say that. So ecclesial just means the church. Sin has infected even the church, because individuals are in the midst of it. So it shouldn't ever surprise us when the church doesn't live up to its calling, the church by profession and confession is a people needing to be saved. Yes, people who have been saved, but people who even in the moment need to be saved. It's really uh, common right now, especially among young folks that may have been around the church or been around the church to really critique the church. Like the church is failing, the church is doing this, the church is this and that and this. And they just look down on the church, they look down on the church. And, and then many of them that really care get horrified by it. They're amazed, like, how did the church fail so bad? Or how are we failing so bad? And why aren't we living into this? And why aren't we living into this? And I just kind of want to relax people sometime and go, you believe the Bible, right? Yeah, I believe the Bible. So show me a point in the Bible where the people of God, Old Testament or New, were fully faithful. Just show me. Folks, it's not there. Right? Like the people of God start with Abraham being called, who was a pagan. Like not long after, he has this incredible moment of Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? Not then he's walking to a border and this government and the leaders of this government are coming out and they're like, hey, who's that woman that's with you? And he's like, I don't want to die. So he takes his wife and he's like, she's my sister. You want her? What? Like, you're taking your wife and handing her to people saying your sister to preserve yourself? I mean, just displaying right there that sin is this radical curvature inward, I care about me, and our eyes go off of God and off of other people, and we don't live it. Then, the nation that was created out of Abraham, Israel, is unfaithful all over the place. They see these miraculous things, then they begin to curse God and complain about God and be massively ungrateful, right after he's done, like, splitting the Red Sea, for God's sake right? Like literally, they go on and do it. Then you have, oh, but the new covenant, right? He takes out and he puts in a heart of flesh and now there's this new people and this amazing stuff's going on. Every New Testament letter has a corrective in it. And almost every New Testament letter is written as a corrective that the people of God weren't living up to it. Go all the way into the book of Revelation. The first chapters are letters to the seven churches in Revelation, most of them grossly unfaithful. So let's just come back and breathe and never accept that. Don't ever accept it because the challenge with sin infecting the church is it compromises the witness of Christ in the world. God has moved in the church, in the people of God, to display his wisdom to even the devil and demons, but also to the world himself. So we should grieve this reality, but not be surprised. Do you hear me? We should grieve it, repent of it, but don't be surprised by it. And when somebody goes, here's the sin of the church, don't be like, no, 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 and try to justify yourself. Go, yeah. We're in sin. We're a fallen people that desperately follow a Lord whom we're called to give allegiance to, but we fail and thank God that that Lord's a Savior. 
So folks, that alone begins to make sense of so many things. These things in the world that we can't make sense of, but they're so dark, cosmic. This reality of why we do the things we don't want to do and the things we want to do, we don't, and how it affects all of society, even the church. So now go to Ephesians chapter 2. For it is by grace you've been saved. Don't think of the salvation in some simple, truncated way that just, it does, but deals with my soul so that later on I'll be able to get there. It has everything to do with right now. Everything. Okay? For by grace you have been saved. So let's take the word grace. Grace is one way love. Grace is not I meet you in the middle love. There's an old country song that has a line that says, we'll meet in the middle beneath that old Georgia pine. Do you like my voice? I, tell them. Tell them I should be up here, right? You don't meet in the middle, folks. The Bible says we are dead in sin. Dead people don't meet you in the middle. Like you can go to a morgue right now and go, hey, meet me halfway. They're not going to do it. Here's the other thing. Blind people have a really hard time getting to the middle. The Bible says we're blind to the things of God. Grace starts it continues it and finishes it. Christ, Hebrews says, is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Beginning, middle, and end. Grace is one-way love. Or here's another way you can say it. Grace is love for no reason. Love for no reason. Now, some of you may bristle at that, no reason. So if somebody sits down and goes, I love you. Many people in this room would look back and go, why do you love me? And they may go, it's the sparkle in your eye. And you're like, oh, amazing. I love the color of your hair. The fragrance of your breath. Now, nobody says that, but. <laughs> right? Or they're like your character. But what's amazing if we're thinking about it in regards to marriage, is people will sit up at a marriage, like in a moment like this, and they make these vows, and one of them is in sickness and in health, for better or worse. So if the reason I love somebody is because of the sparkle in their eye, what if they get in a car accident and flames go up and their whole face get burned and their eyes don't ever look the same? Do you stop loving them? Or maybe in that same accident, they encountered a traumatic brain injury or the person that you love went uh, to the military and ended up getting PTSD. Do you not love them after? The only reality of true love is love for no reason. I love you because I love you. That's what grace is. The only pure reality of love that enables human beings to love out true love in the power of the Holy Spirit is love without reason. That's grace. For it is by grace, one way love, what God initiated. It didn't start somewhere else. It started from God. It's sustained by God and it will be completed by God. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Now, I love looking at that. If you wonder where I'm looking, there's actually a Bible verse right there. So I'm not looking above you. I'll look at you. You don't turn around. It really is there. You look here. I'm looking there. It is the gift of God. So I ask myself the question, what's the gift of God? Grace, salvation, saved, or faith? So you could break it down grammatically. 
And then you could study it theologically and here's what you'll come up with. Yes. Grace is a gift. Salvation is a gift. And here's why salvation's a gift. Because salvation's God's property. Salvation is God's property. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We don't take it. It's his to give. And he gives it. It's a gift. Grace is, salvation is, and faith is. It's all gift. Now, Here's where faith gets very interesting because faith is trust. Faith is trust. Now, I want you to see something. You and I and everybody in this room don't have faith outside of the initiation, power, and the generating reality of God in your life. If we have faith, we have faith and trust because God granted it to us. This is why 1 John's so clear. We love God because he first loved us. So it's not taking away the fact that you love God, but you love God because he first loved you. Grace is a gift, salvation is a gift, faith is a gift because God is the one pursuing. God is the one acting. God is the one regenerating. God is the one bringing to life and transforming us in the midst of it. But faith is trust. Another word would be allegiance. Faith is the thing that gets us to the point when Jesus says, if you love me, you obey my commandments. We obey because of faith and we obey in faith. So the Bible calls us to live out love and service. And he says, serve in the strength he supplies. But it is allegiance. It isn't just going, he does it, and now I don't activate my faith. The reality is the faith that saves us is a living faith. It's not a dead faith. The faith that saves is a living faith, so it is allegiance. But let me talk in reality. I think one of our big problems in the Christian life is that we try to generate faith even after we have it. There's a man in the Gospels, and I've referred to this before, that comes to Jesus and Jesus begins to have a conversation with him about faith and this man says, back to Jesus who asked the question, do you believe? And the man is very honest. He goes, my belief is real, but it's also becoming real. So he says this, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. His belief is what got him to the feet of Jesus at that moment. He didn't travel wherever he came from to go to Jesus because he didn't trust and believe Jesus could do something. That's called a waste of time. He did believe, but then he knew the hindrance between him and where God wanted him, between him and where he even wanted to go, was a lack of belief. Now, folks, listen to me. This happens in small ways and in huge ways. My mother-in-law, over a handful of years ago, passed away from what started as inflammatory breast cancer. When we heard about inflammatory breast cancer, they gave her seven months to live. They said, you know, there are some situations that people last even up to seven years. But it's a grueling cancer. Horrible. Horrible. And she lasted seven years of absolute horror. Now hear this in this story. That was one of my first encounters with understanding, like, we're just persons. Like, as much as you want to slice and dice things of people are this, they're emotional, they're physical, they're spiritual, I knew this. Whatever had physically invaded her body affected her physically, which affected her mentally, which affected her emotionally, which affected her spiritually, because she's one person. 
So we have these moments where everybody's over at the house and they're watching games and they're eating and I end up in the kitchen with her and I can see there's anguish all over her face. There's physical anguish, but there's something even deeper than physical anguish. And she begins to express to me how hard belief is in moments like this. Like things are just dark, like black. And now she begins to have all these doubts. Like, is this even real? If it's real, how could God ever allow something like this to happen? All of the fear of what's gonna happen to her kids and the fear of what's gonna happen to her husband, who by the way is Tom Schrader, who founded this church, um, wrestling with all of these things. Like, what, what is this? What do I do? And then what's crazy is there's this vicious cycle so you begin to doubt, and then you hit this moment where you go, well, if I'm doubting like this, and this is real, I surely can't be a Christian. God's certainly going to send me to hell. Like, if I'm doing this, right, I'm doubting all these things, <clears throat> I'm not certain it's real, but if it's real, I'm not even a Christian. She's saying this to me, and you can tell it's deeply anguishing her, and I'm convinced that God gave me this word. There's this moment with Jesus where he tells his disciples, when you're in that moment, just trust, and I'll give you the words to speak. So this wasn't my wisdom, but I said to her, I said, Susan, I really believe in the end. Faith shows itself to be faith when you can conjure none of it up. When it's so dark that you look at God and you go, if I believe right now, it's because you're making me believe. You have to believe on my behalf. Faith proves itself to be faith when you go, I know it's all gift. Like when it gets that dark in a moment, when things are that hard, when you are that despondent, where you're going, there's no rational way. There's not a feeling in my body. All I know is, God, this is real. You gotta believe on my behalf. I have a friend of mine who illustrates this with monkey babies and toddlers and cat toddlers. I mean that by the language. So if you think about a monkey, when, when a mother monkey is like, hey, baby, come along with me. The baby jumps on the back and there's kind of two ways the monkey will get transported. One is it grips its mom's fur from the back like this, or like those things that you can buy at the zoo where the monkeys come, there's Velcro and they attach to your neck. They don't have Velcro. They, they're grip. They hold on like this. So when you watch videos of monkeys that are flying through the jungle, you'll see these little babies and they're holding on for dear life one way or another. And you see the mom move and it's like the baby monkey's going, don't lose your grip or you're going to die. <laughs> right? Like this is up to me. If I, uh, uh, like I'm going to die, right? At that moment. And you see it in their face. Contrasted with a cat. A cat, mom doesn't even probably say, let's go. She just, whoom, mouth over boom, grabs the back of the cat's neck, lifts the cat up. Now the cat's face is like the monkey's face, right? Mom starts running and the cat's like, woof, woof, like flying all over. Like, mom, if you don't hold on, I'm going to die. But there's a big difference in this. The monkey says, if I don't hold on, I'm going to die. The cat says, unless you hold on, I'm going to die. Who do you trust more, you or God? And my friend said, thank God for cat grace. <laughs> thank God that God's the one who sustains this. That's reality. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not of yourselves. It's not by works. So on three, all three of us are going to go, no works. Not, let's, let's say it better. Because that would actually be unbiblical. So let's say not by works on three. One, two, three. Not 
by works, okay? We're not saved by works. We are not saved by works so that no one can boast. I'm going to say this really quickly. If we believe in this kind of grace, this reality of salvation, this truth about faith, you cannot be arrogant. It's absolutely a contradiction. You can't. If you really get it and it sinks in your bones, you can't be arrogant. This is why the Bible talks about not judging. Like the Masters was on a couple weeks ago and I watch all of these Christians are like, I just can't even cheer for Tiger Woods. Like there's all these people who are cheering for, I can't do it. Why? He committed adultery. You committed adultery on God. How do we boast? How do we look down our noses at anybody? They're our enemies. You were an enemy of God. You were an adulterer from God. Like the most gracious, understanding, merciful people in the world. Read the end of James 2. Judgment is coming, but remember, mercy triumphs over judgment. Folks, that's us. We cannot boast. Now, here's where we get into the last verse. And here are three things that I think really describe this verse. We are saved by grace, not works. We are the work. Third, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So go back to this. Verse 10 starts by saying this. He's done all this work on grace, on faith, on salvation. And then he says, for, what's God doing? For, we are God's handiwork. This is really important. We, the we here is Jew and Gentile. We are good God's handiwork. Handiwork in other places, for we are God's workmanship. And that word literally means poema is the word, which is we are God's poem. If you think about poems for a minute, let me, before I say this, say this. This is in the plural, we, not you. So you as an individual are not God's poem. But we together in faith as the church are God's poem. Now individually, you can look at where God, it says God formed us, each individual, and knit us together in our mother's womb with incredible care and advanced preparation. That's like a poet. A poet in advance, this could be true of a songwriter as well, is in advance thinking through situations, thinking through music and the moods of music and the sound that would go along with it. Or a poet is thinking through the words and the exact word they want to choose and how the words go together to reflect the emotions and the reality of life but they're planning in advance. Look at God prepared in advance for us to do at the end. He's preparing these things in advance like a poet. And then he's crafting together our handiwork. He's weaving together this reality called the church of all different types of places, of all different types of ethnicities from multiple generations all across the world. He's weaving together the church that's expressed in a local form. But we are God's poem created in Christ Jesus to do good works. So this means we're saved not by works. We are the work. Salvation is creating the work. We are the work created for good works. So think about this in good works. There's a moment in the Gospels where a man comes to Jesus and he says, hey, good teacher. And Jesus, the way he does, which is always kind of crazy, looks back and he goes, hey, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God alone. Folks, we've said it so far, you're going to sing it again. God is good. 
even in this moment where you feel like he's not, God is good. And then God says, if I have activated you in faith to be a full representation of how you were made to be in the image of God, you are called to do good. This faith is not passive. You're created in Christ Jesus. You who could do nothing good. We had nothing within us. He activates the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit and the powerful dynamism of grace through faith to change us and to transform us, to make us zealous for good deeds. Look at Titus 2. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own eager to do what is good. Other translations, zealous to do what is good. So here's the question as we end. The question is not, are we saved by our good? What's the answer to that? No. What is God doing? He's creating his handiwork who in Christ are created to do good. What's the good? Well, let's just make it as simple as Jesus made it. What's the greatest of all the commandments? Love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, who's my neighbor? Your neighbor is your neighbor. Oh, but my neighbor isn't like me. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, but my neighbor's my enemy. Love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, but in order for me to love them, that's gonna be at big cost to me. Ephesians 5.1, imitate God. It was at massive cost to himself. Real love is for no reason and real love is costly love. Real love is costly love. And remember this, it isn't cost with no benefit. For you will be happier. More blessed is it to give, to sacrifice, to give ourselves. We will be happier in giving than we will be in receiving. Amen? All right. So every... Um, Time we gather together, we have this moment of communion. And every time we partake of communion, we have to make this moment a, a moment of confession. So we're going to take some just quiet time right now. And I'm going to guide you in a minute in confession. Let's start with the end of that verse. Here's the way I want you to be guided. You know yourself. You know your situation. But we need to confess a lack of love, a lack of good work. We need to confess it wherever it is in your life. If it's in your home, if it's close to you, if it's near to you, if it's far from you, if you have hatred in your heart, you've got to confess this to God and ask him to change you, to transform you in the midst of it. So we're going to confess a lack of love. We're not doing the good that God wants us to do. The second thing is confess a lack of gratitude. It's so often that these passages can just sit there, but we don't ever just sit and go, God, thank you. Thessalonians says, you've created us in Christ Jesus to be thankful. Right? This is God's will for you in Christ, that you give thanks. That's the way Paul says it. We need to confess a lack of gratitude. And then lastly, uh, we need to confess our own works. How we try to prove to God and prove to ourselves that we're really right with God because of what we're doing. And this reality of, Lord, I just need to receive I need to receive your power. I need to receive your grace. I need to ask for more faith. I need to ask for the Holy Spirit, which enables all of these good works to have. So confess a lack of love. Confess a lack of gratitude. And then we're gonna confess that we've been trying to do way too much of this in our own strength. All right, let's be quiet and have a moment of confession.